With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which uh, organized today's event, and I'd like to welcome Ira Rosen to our program. This is one of our many online programs. Uh, we've done over 300 since the uh, virus shut us down almost exactly a year ago now. Um, so this is actually the last one of the first year of shutdown. And uh, Ira is coming to us directly from Savannah, Georgia. Where are you at? You're at a bookstore in Savannah, Georgia, right? Yeah, I'm at a great bookstore called The Book Lady. Um, it's... Uh, but they don't have my book, but they'll have it after today. <laughs> <laughs> it's brand new. So, uh, first of all, this, the first thing that I thought when I finished reading your book was the usual six degrees of separation between me and thousands of very famous people in politics and entertainment and media were all going to be collapsed down to one degree of separation. That is, you know, you're, you're my one degree of separation. Second thing I thought was I, I better work really hard to keep that one degree of separation because... Most of these people don't seem to be that good of company, but pleasant company. You know, I mean, that's very fascinating, except for a few mafia dons, uh, which is John Charming. <laughs> and, and so I was sort of curious, um, your, your experience with so many different uh, types of people, what is it that you think makes, drives these people to be uh, less than pleasant? I mean, you, you, you told a lot of great stories of the people that you really liked working with and stuff like that, but... Sure. What is it overall that you think makes it makes people drive, you know, themselves into that corner? It's the pressure to win and the fear of failure. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw this with everybody from uh, Mike Wallace to Joe Bonanno, uh, the head of organized crime in uh, in New York for a period of time. I saw it with, uh, you know, John Gotti. I saw it with uh, Andre Sakharov mm -hmm. uh, when I was with him in Moscow. So it's, it's really that simple. And people um, respond to pressure in different ways. And the fear, the, that it's the greater fear of failure. It's the greater fear that something is going to um, cause them to uh, look, look bad. Um, that's really what it's about. I, I think that's a great answer, first of all. And I'm glad you brought Andre Sakharov into it uh, because I was going to go to him later. You, oh, yeah. You did, as, you did that as part of... Um, a, the nuclear background and you pulled him into a, and I love the way you pulled him into that program and how that made the program work. I, I love it. If you told that story, that's a great one. Oh yeah. No, no. Um, I was doing a profile of Edward Teller, who was the creator of the H bomb. Uh, in fact, you know, he used to be stationed at the Hoover Institute out, out where you guys are. Mm -hmm. And um, Teller insisted um, on, on um, he, he wrote a book at the time and he only wanted us to ask questions from his book. And I said, I told Mike Wallace, this is going to go bad. This, mm -hmm. you know, he wants to start, as I said, on page 33, and he recited the title of his book. He said, no, 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 it'll be, be fine. It'll be fine. So as part of it, to try to make it seem a little bit better, um, I, he had a great admiration for Andrei Sakharov, who, as you know, created the H-bomb in for, for the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Moscow. I mean, this shows you a little bit about how we had if you will, a kind of an open expense account. So yeah. I went to Moscow 
and met up with uh, Sakharov. And it was really a remarkable moment in time because Sakharov had won the Nobel Peace Prize and, uh, and, and the Russians were leaving him alone. So he had a gathering of dissidents in his, office, in his uh, home. Uh, Elena Bonner was his wife. And, uh, and I remember going there and it, it's, it's like the world's greatest coffee clutch. All uh, <laughs> these people who want to change society and are all there and have been through extraordinary hardships and telling great stories. And uh, we picked uh, Dr. Sakharov up and Elena Bonner put a finger and at me and said, you make sure you bring him back by three o'clock. Mm-hmm. And that's all Mike Wallace had to hear because Mike is a contrarian. And if you tell him to bring him back at three, you could be sure he's going to bring him back at four. And sure enough, um, that's kind of what happened. But but we did an interview with Dr. Sakharov where he said that the way the um, the Russians figured out how to build the H-bomb was to go into the snows of Siberia and after a U.S. nuclear test and gather the fallout from the U.S. tests. And they would kind of go in the snow and and then deconstruct what they found. Um, and then they could figure out, you know, the components of the bomb, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. It was fascinating, in fact, that the CBS translator didn't want to translate it at the time because he thought that, you know, he's revealing some state secrets. Uh-huh. Uh, so Sakharov actually delivered that answer in kind of a broken English. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, we bring him back and Mike and him are having a good time. And we bring him back at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock. And sure enough, Elena Bonner had locked him out of the house. And uh, he's sitting out on this stoop, um, you know, in a very cold, wintry day in Moscow. And I said, Mike, we can't leave Dr. Sakharov. He's no, no, he, he's fine. He's fine. He's, he's all right. And so, you know, we, that was the last we ever saw of him and stuff. Um, but it was remarkable to spend a little time with him. He, he, um, he diminished um, the Rosenbergs in the sense that he said they really didn't contribute very much to help us build uh, the bombs. Yeah, yeah, it was so fascinating how, how they can, you know, pick up. I'm mean, fascinated by scientists who can do this in any, in any different way. But to just skim the fallout off the top of the snow and then figure out how the H-bomb was constructed, re-engineering, you know, you know reverse engineering it. Exactly. Um, it's just, just a pretty impressive uh, skill. So I, I love that story. Um, now let's go back a little bit to your start. Uh, one of the things that you, you got started at Cornell, um, as a as a writer for the just the paper, and and you did an expose uh, on on some uh, coaches. I, I thought that was a great way to get started. Yeah, my friends were telling me that uh, I said you guys must eat well on the on the road, and uh, they said, "What are you talking about? We go to McDonald's." I said, mm-hmm. "We go to McDonald's pregame." Yeah, and so um, I went to the school's bursar's office and got the uh, accounting of uh, what they did, and there was a a sheet of paper. Everyone, each one of these players received $55 in cash for meals. Uh, when in, and so I showed it to the players. They said, $55, we received $12. Yeah. So uh, I then tracked it to each one of the players. And, and the longer story is that um, uh, it turned out they were using the money to pay for incoming recruits uh, uh, application fees. Uh, and that became my first kind of big story. And it helped me get a job uh, with Jack Anderson, uh, who was a kind of a muckraking columnist in Washington at the time. And when I, when I met with Anderson, I, uh, I actually met with his deputy first, Les Witten. And Les, 
Les had me sit there and he's like opening up a letter and he says, oh man, this is, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, I get these mail. He said, oh my God, it's a letter bomb. And he took it and he threw it right at me and it landed on my lap. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, and I didn't know what to do. And uh, it turned out it was a gag with Jack. And uh, he picked up the phone and he said, hey, the kid fell for the old letter bomb trick. I think he just wet his pants. And, uh, and it was kind of this period of time where people would wander in off the streets. And um, one of them was somebody who said that the CIA had planted a bug in his body. And yeah. so what Les did was he bent a, a metal iron uh, kind of so it was a long strand attaches the back of the guy's pants mm-hmm. so it dragged on the floor and he said here this short circuits them it really messes them up bad and so the guy wanders off you know I always wondered what happened to him but he kind of wandered off down the streets um, and it was it was in the in the middle of Watergate um, so it was an extraordinary time to be an investigative reporter mm-hmm. uh, in Washington and um I, I was inspired by these guys, and I never, part of me never wanted to be like them because I never thought I could be like them. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, you know, Cy Hirsch and Jack Anderson. I mean, I used to, I, I, I got friendly with Cy, and um, he would, he would leave, he would, he would stand up outside people's homes when they left in the morning, and then he'd be waiting outside their homes when they got back in the evening. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about a dogged reporter. I mean, he would just constantly be chasing these people down. Um, and I loved him. I loved it. I loved that kind of zest. Um, and, and it really helped me kind of energize me to do the work. The first thing you said about uh, when, we, when we first started talking about why people do this is the insecurity and the, the fear of failure. Do you think that that's why people are willing to, to tell their stories to the media? You have a very interesting story about, you know, when, once you were an executive producer at 60 Minutes, that you could go to almost any senator and, and get their time because they wanted that time. They wanted that yeah. media time. So Right. I was never executive producer. I was a producer. But but what you're, you're 100% right because what it was is people thought they could outsmart you. Yeah. People thought, one, they could either outsmart you, outcharm you, uh, or out finesse you. Mm-hmm. And um, what I learned from Mike Wallace is he built up an air of confidentiality with a person where it's like, be, he used to say, okay, between you and me. Yeah. yeah. And 12 million viewers. <laughs> kind of left that part of it out. Right. <laughs> but, um, but he built this air of confidentiality with a person um, and where they got kind of sucked into it and Mike taught me that uh, you always want to ask the hardest question first so Mm -hmm. that way the guy or the woman breathes easy relaxes Mm -hmm. and and then of course you come back at it somewhere in the middle or the end again you know you said this earlier you know that that kind of bothered me that you 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 said that Um, people um, people feel that they could um, rehabilitate their images if they've been accused of something and they feel that they could do this on air. The people who come off best on camera are the people who are the most interesting people, people mm-hmm. you have a drink with or talk with. Um, you know, and, and Bob, I learned this actually from Bob Simon, who was a correspondent on our broadcast. Mm-hmm. I, one time I came back from Israel and I was so proud of myself. I, I got the director of intelligence on camera and he looked at me and he said, is he a good talker? I said, well, not really. He speaks with a heavy Israeli accent. He said, nobody at home cares if it's a general or a colonel. They just want to know that he could talk well. Yeah. And he said, God, you know, Bob is so right. Because Bob always got the best 
talkers in Israel. He didn't care what their position was. He, Bob, Bob at one point was Israeli uh, bureau chief for uh, CBS. Mm-hmm. And he had, he had the whole country wired, but he always found some lieutenant or colonel who was great. Yeah, somebody who, who can project into the stream a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, you, you just, when you were talking about people always think that they can talk their way out of it, it reminded me immediately of Prince Andrew's uh, uh, last interview where he just dug himself deeper into the hole. You know? Yeah, I, I didn't get that. I didn't get why, you know, first of all, so you could think someone like Prince Andrew gets a little media training. Yeah. And, um, before doing such a significant interview like that, he would have been prepping for days and, and you know, but yeah, you're right. I just don't get that. Don't Interesting get that. that you say that too, because that brings us, you know, like to somebody like Nixon or some of the other big politicians who also said, oh, I don't need any, any practice before I go on. I'm a debater. I am this or that. And then, then really getting destroyed by what they do on screen. So what is it that you, I mean, if you had to advise these, uh, all these people, because you, you spoke to so many politicians, so many people in the entertainment industry, and, and of course you worked with the guys in the media that were famous. What would you advise people who want to make it, because everybody's doing stuff online now and out of their own homes and everything. What's the crucial part of it that made right. it? Probably, you know, it's the, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Yeah. They need to, they need to try out their, their lines and their, their responses with people who they trust, whether it's a, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, you know, friend, whoever it is, and they need to see how that sounds. And you want somebody who gives you kind of honest feedback uh, back. Um, the, the main thing is the viewer has a great, I, you know, the camera never, you know, there was a book that Dan Rather had written, um, Camera Never Blinks. Mm-hmm. And, and that the viewer kind of understands um, when a person is lying and not lying. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what, why I got fascinated with all these gangsters. Because mm-hmm. once when they decide to tell the, their story, um, they often tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's a journey to get them to go on camera. But once when they actually sit down, they talk about, you know, some of their crimes, they talk about the commission, uh, they talk about amazing stuff. Um, And politicians are constantly thinking, which constituency do I not want to get angry or which constituency am I trying to cater to? And um, you could see this. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to start calling out this one or that one, because frankly, they're, you know, it's universal. It's universal, exactly. It's universal, but uh, you could actually see when you just and and these are people who I got to know, who I had a good relations with. A lot of these people, and I just said, "Will you just stop it and just tell me, tell me what you're thinking? Just tell me." They can't. They it's like it's like they uh, you know and they they they're constantly trying to spin you, um, and and that's sort of what you know. That's I you know and. Um, whatever your politics are, one of the things that, you know, I keep coming back to is Donald Trump got 70 million people to vote for. Mm-hmm. And yes, a lot of them liked his policies, but a lot of, a lot of people felt that he was a genuine person, mm-hmm. that there was a genuineness to it. Uh, whatever that genuineness was, they felt right. it was genuine. And um, that's my, this is my opinion about why he, why he kept holding on to a lot of people. You know, um, you you know, when when the election was going on, um, uh, I went to, a, you know, a few of these rallies and people would line up for hours to get in mm-hmm. uh, like he was some rock star. 
Um, and then I went to um, Hillary Clinton's rallies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they some of them, they had to sort of try to pull people off the streets to sort of get to. And, um, you know, I'm not saying one versus the other. And, you know, I don't right. want to get po- political here. But, um, you know, people saw that. And that's why he did so well on camera. You know, they felt like, you know, when he'd be screaming, get that person out of here, get him out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would never see, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton or anybody. So they, they welcome, a, you know, diverse opinions on things. Right. Um, well, it, you're in a great position. That was one of my questions uh, for, for later, sure. but I'm going to do it right now. Um, you're in a great position to have watched the interaction between the media and politics over the years. And of course, we were we were both young at the time that Kennedy and Nixon did their first uh, interview. You know, we were we were six, seven, eight years old. Um, right. That was the start of uh, of the media and how people have evolved in their relationship back and forth between the media and the politicians. But but what you're saying is very interesting, which is, you know, it's still the genuineness of somebody to, to come across. And, and, and again, the training maybe of somebody like Reagan uh, to come across. Exactly. It makes all the difference. And I, I assume that you assume that the future is going to be more and more of the same. That you're yeah, going to be skilled. You know, you're exactly right. How do you teach authenticity? How do you teach honesty? Yeah. I mean, um, you, you're, you're obviously a student of Socrates. I mean, how do you teach truthfulness? How do you teach honesty? And um, well, that's, the, the, that's the old thing in Hollywood, right? And once you learn to fake sincerity, you've got it made here. Yeah, no, yeah. right, right. And, and, but you know what? It's getting harder and harder to do that because yeah. I, I think that the people who come off as genuine – whether, you know, it's somebody who's buying a pizza and saying, I like this pizza versus that pizza, you know, who has, you know, enormous number of followers. Um, the, the reason some of these platforms are, are, are uh, hitting uh, TikTok, for example, is because, you know, people see there's a certain realness to it. There's fun. Uh, I remember when I was doing a story on, um, on um, social influencers and there was a woman who went and bought a Chewbacca mask. Mm-hmm. In his store, and then put it on, and she just was laughing, 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 laughing. It became the hottest video that people passed. All it was was a, a woman who went in, bought a Chewbacca mask, put it on her face, and had an authentic reaction to it, seeing her with a silly mask on. Mm-hmm. And the thing went viral and viral and viral. Um, and she, she ended up getting invited to talk shows uh, because people were so fascinated by her. It's the search for authenticity. It's the search for realness that I think people um, are, are craving and want. And that's what they see. Uh, and that's what, you know, that's what punches through on TV. Yeah, I was going to say that that's what punches through on TV. Exactly what I was thinking. And it's uh, what I find fascinating about, about this is that people have all been lying to each other for such a long period of time. And why are we interested in all the shows that you put on for 40 years? Why are we interested in those people? It's mostly everybody's saying, you know, we all have to live life. We're all trying to figure out how other people did it because we really don't have a blueprint, right? Right. No, it's so, true. So you just kind of watch how other people do it. And so the more authenticity is, the more interest you have. And as you said, with, with somebody like Trump, in spite of the fact that the genuineness is, is not He's like a throwback to an old king or something like that from a thousand years ago who said, I know what I'm doing. Everybody follow me. But but had that confidence. Go ahead, you know, and and didn't really try to polish himself in the way that, you know, 
the elite that he was talking against have always been trained to polish themselves, you know? Right, right. And I did a profile of John Gotti Jr. And mm-hmm. um, once, and he was, he has succeeded his father, who is the biggest gangster in New York's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he didn't want to, and he quit the mob mm-hmm. uh, in order to, um, you know, be with his family. And uh, it took me four years to get him into the, can- into uh the chair to do the interview. Yeah. But once when he sat down and did the interview, it became one of the most memorable 60 minutes of all time. It was started off as two parts, mm-hmm. then grew into an hour. Uh-huh. And it's repeated and and it's, you know, you could watch it on YouTube if you're interested. But there was just something real and something sincere about when he was talking about we, you know, he would follow his, he said he would follow his father no matter what the business was he said if my father was a butcher just get me a smock Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know there there was that sort it got one of my favorite things is after the piece aired i got a um call from one of the former new york city police commissioners who said oh i really liked him i really liked him i said you like him (laughs) want to put him in jail for 10 years what do you mean (laughs) no no he came off well you know he came (laughs) <laughs> well, I was like I just shook my head. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, people talk about how rich people can get out of the, their their crimes and so on and so forth. But people who have that capacity to be genuine in front of uh, the court and, and, and in front of a jury also can walk away um, because people again are saying, "Well, you know, if I if if not for the grace of God, some people say, well, if not for this, I would be in those shoes too, or I, I would be in that situation." And so they. They feel for them, but people that are, that's as they always say, the cover-up is much worse than the crime that you committed, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, you uh, you talk about Gotti and, and his father uh, became the, the mafia leader because of, he took out uh, Castellano in front of Spark Steakhouse. I just thought I'd throw in, you know, one of our connections, which is I was working as a lawyer at that time in New York City. And uh, one of our clients was going to buy Spark Steakhouse. And we were oh negotiating for Spark Steakhouse on the day that the guy got shot. That put an end to the deal because <laughs> he said, what about the mafia goes there? He had no idea. So, um, but, but it was really weird to, to uh, you know, have a deal destroyed by the fact that there was a mafia hit right outside of the uh, That'll do restaurant. It. Yeah, that'll do it, yes. <laughs> that'll do it. Oh, my God. So now you you worked on uh, before we get to some of the celebrities. You worked on some really important uh, investigations um, that changed things. One of them was uh, the insider trading uh, in Congress. Why don't you tell about that? And, and also the epilogue, which is very disappointing about about uh, politicians, but it's part of the story. I think it's oh, yeah. But yeah, tell that thanks, story. I think that's great. No, no. Thanks for asking. It. I mean. Um, I was working uh, with Peter Schweitzer, who's an author who'd written a, a few books. He, he's, I think he's another Hoover Institute person. I, I seem to like Hoover Institute. But there was a, a chapter in his book uh, that, that kind of caught my eye about inst- that it's legal for congressmen and senators to trade stocks based on inside information that they've gotten from congressional hearings uh, closed hearings in many cases. So they're uh, trading uh, stocks based on, uh, you know, who's gonna, who may get a contract or who won't. Uh, one senator who we focused on uh, shorted um, stocks after getting a briefing from Hank Paulson uh, that the U.S. economy was about to crater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way I kind of found that little bit of business out was I looked at Hank Paulson's book 
and he basically wrote in wrote it in diary form and so he said i briefed this senator on this time that the u.s economy was going to crater and then the senator posted his stock trades but he posted the the um, brokerage accounts so you had time stamped when the stock trade was Mm -hmm. so i matched up when the meeting was when with when the stock trade was and it was within 30 minutes and the guy and the senator cleared 30,000 or something in a short period of time in a very you know 30,000 you know it was a lot of money for you know for you know 20 25 percent of what they make in a year or something at that time at that time and uh, they've given themselves some raises since and uh, and so we at the time, there was a uh, corrective legislation to make this illegal called the Stock Act, and it only had 13 sponsors. So after we did the story, it got 185 sponsors, like within a week. Mm-hmm. Senators were fighting over who's going to sponsor it in the Senate. Mm-hmm. President Obama talked about it in the State of the Union, mm-hmm. and within three or four months, it in, ended up uh, passing. And I was in the White House. I was invited in the White House to watch the signing. Mm-hmm. And, and uh that gave that was enormously satisfying however however, <laughs> however within a few months after you know 60 minutes leaves town and the stock act is passed and everybody glad hands themselves it quietly pa- uh they rescinded through a, a voice vote which basically means you know there's no registered uh vote by any congressman or senators they vote for it yay nay that sort of thing so they rescinded it and then in the um last go-round in the pandemic a few senators um got called out on the uh, carpet um for doing inside trading on the uh, pandemic Mm -hmm. so it's like business as usual right um I, I found, you know, the, I found over the years the corruption in Washington is breathtaking. Much, in many ways, much worse and much um, with, with, with far larger impact to people than anything like the mafia may be doing in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys, I mean, these guys, they, these guys and women, I don't want to just, yeah. you know, blame the male race, um, but they, they're, they're, extraordinary i mean another story we did was on um which i'm incredibly proud was on the opiate epidemic and um what they what what congress did is they passed legislation that neutered the powers of the dea at the height of the opiate epidemic that took away all their powers of enforcement abilities and then after they passed this legislation you know, scores of them went to work for the, you know, the opiate industry and drug industries mm-hmm. uh, as lobbyists, as vice presidents. Um, so one person in particular, he actually helped craft the legislation that neutered the agency that he used to work for. And then he went to work for the drug industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the congressmen who did this was um, he didn't work for the drug industry, but uh, Congressman Marino his 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 people did, but he um, he was the architect of this legislation. And then um, two days after, um, he was named to be Donald Trump's new drug czar. And then um, we do the story. And then within two days of of us doing the story, Trump rescinds the offer, if you will, right, right, and um, takes it away. 
and we did that um, in, as a great collaboration with the Washington Post, and uh, it really affected change. Those are the stories that over the years I've gotten the most satisfaction from. Yeah. Um, not to mention quite a few awards, um, uh, which I've is done well, yeah, so, yeah. Which is, yeah, very well. And, uh, yeah. and I, I think, uh, maybe this is a good time to go back and tell the story about your father's, uh, childhood, because it, it clearly must've affected your desire to, to have an effect on the community in which people live, uh, because yeah. he came from such a difficult situation. There's really not a day or a week that goes by that I don't think about what what he went through in Poland. He was um, he was in a uh, small uh, town on the border of uh, Poland and Russia uh, when the Nazis came in, and um, they basically told um, and and um, his 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 um, his mother um, secured a place for him to be hidden, um, basically while the Nazis were there and basically through the war. A uh, righteous family uh, took him in, hid him in a uh, haystack, and protected him for three years. Not even telling the story, not even telling their their kids, except for their oldest daughter, uh, that that they had my father hiding upstairs. He was 16 years old at the time, mm -hmm. uh, but he could only hide one. And so uh, my father's mother and and uh, his twin sisters went back to the town. And basically what the Nazis said was for the next 48 hours, you could do anything to the Jews. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, you know, the Jews were slaughtered all through the town and they, they robbed and all sorts of things. And I often thought about that. On one hand, given permission to commit a crime without consequence, mm -hmm. would you do that? Or given the opportunity to save another life, but it would risk putting your family at risk would you do that? So my father faced, you know, in that in that little town in Poland, it was the best of humanity and the worst of humanity coming out to play. And um, as I wrote in my book, Ticking Clock, the the in the very at the end of the first chapter, you know, it's like I always keep one eye open, looking out for the neighbors, if you will, mm -hmm. and um, not you know, tr it's the old Reagan line of trust but verify, mm -hmm. and. Um, I think about that a lot, about what decision um, would, I, would I have the courage to take in somebody who, who was about to get murdered, but it would risk putting my family at risk. Uh, yeah. and, and the story of the righteousness of those people has been told a little bit, uh, but not told enough. Um, certainly, um, Spielberg did, did a version of that in Schindler's List, but, um, I, I think about that quite a bit. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it brings us right back to the big issues about the politicians and what they've done and how they speak and what they do. Uh, I thought there was uh, a very good line that you had in the, uh, 60 minutes show with the Carters during Reagan's administration, when Rosalind Carter said this thing about Reagan, because Reagan was somebody who, himself personally was one of those charming uh, people that, that uh, especially after he got shot, uh, you know, using his sense of humor, that kind of thing that really worked on TV, whether you liked his policies or not, he was popular at different times. Um, yeah. but, but, but he did do something all, all kinds of politicians do, which she, I thought, put the, the, 
the needle on when when she made her comment. I want you to tell that story to talk. Yeah, to I know. I I I was doing. Uh, it was I think the first one of the first of the first interview after he left the White House after, and um, uh, Mike Wallace was the correspondent, and Mike was um, friendly with the Reagans. Mm-hmm. And I knew this was not going to go very well, and no. sure enough. Um, we're doing the interview and I, and I'm trying to prod him to sort of, I'm trying to prod Mike to ask him, the president about Reagan. And, um, and I said, will you ask him about human rights under Ronald Reagan? And Mm -hmm. and, uh, Mike said to me, I'm not going to ask him about human rights under Ronald Reagan. I said, Mike, this man stood for human rights. Will you ask him about human rights? He said, no. I said, Mr. President, will you tell him to ask you this? And this is, this also is is a little bit about what producing is about. Yeah. And uh, the president Carter said to me, Ira, don't get me involved in your silly little questions. I said, <laughs> now you're embarrassing me. Ask him about human rights on the bottom. So he said, you want me to ask him? Okay, I'll ask him. And he does like this. He slates the camera and he says, this is how he asked the question. Human rights under Ronald Reagan. Carter almost was like a setup. So he took it and ran with it. He said, the first thing this president did, did was send Jean Kirkpatrick down to snuggle up to Pinochet, and that sent a message that human rights is no longer operative in the Ronald Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. And Mike looks at his notebook, pretty good. Jimmy says to me, like that. Yeah. And I <laughs> like that. Mike calls me a name. Front page New York Times the day after it appears. Yeah. So later in the day, um, I go up to Rosalind Carter and I say, listen, he's, he's really friendly with Nancy Reagan. I want you to come out with your guns blazing. And she says, I'll do my best. And she sits down and says a line, which you referred to, which I stayed with me, which is this president makes us comfortable with our prejudices. Yeah. And, and it, whoa. And it kind of blew me away. Yeah. And um, um, Mike, Mike didn't almost know how to react. That's, he basically said, that's not a very nice thing to say. And, she said, <laughs> and um, it was it was a it was a fantastic line. It was one of the um, I think one of her most quoted lines she's ever spoken. Mm-hmm. And and uh, in the car ride back to um, Atlanta, when we were flying back home, Mike was all worried about, um, you know, what Nancy Reagan and Ron mm-hmm. Reagan would say because he had good relations with them. And uh, to Mike's credit, all of it stayed in. It was a very mm-hmm. tough piece. Uh, and we all move forward from there. But it was the line that always stuck with me. Yeah, very interesting how both of them were very uh, media savvy uh, of how to, especially the way Carter played the game between you and Mike Wallace. I thought that was a great part of the story was that he he played both sides in order to get his, his point in. It reminded me a little bit of, of a story I heard out here um, of how politicians get their way um, in, in things. It was Bill Clinton, one of the one of the political reporters for the ABC San Francisco affiliate. And uh, he said that, you know, when people come to town during elections, you know, they all line up in a hotel and there's five rooms and ABC, NBC, everybody's got their own room and they go from one to the other. So nobody knows anything. Um, Nobody knows anybody. But um, in order to get on the air, the uh, politicians are always using your name. So. Everything that they, every time they answer you, they say, Bob, this, Bob, this, Bob, this, you know, or Ivor, this, you know, and uh, the guy said, but the smartest of them all was Bill Clinton, because he only said your name once. And that was the, the, the soundbite that he wanted to go on, because he knew that that increased the chances of the soundbite he wanted to get on because your name was in it. Yeah, his, his aide, Mandy Grunwald, actually had told him that, uh, 
that these uh, on-air people have such vanity. If you use their name, they'll use the bite. Um, yeah. So uh, he then did, he he did an interview with uh, 60 Minutes during that time, and he kept mentioning Steve Steve Croft's name and yeah. Steve Steve whenever he wanted the answer to be. When he didn't want, he just left his name out. Right. Yeah. Uh, very very clever. That's why I said uh, that's that's the thing uh, that put him uh, up above. Uh, the other politician from political. But then again, when yeah, but his mistake was in revealing that. So, so as a producer, when yeah. he starts doing it, then he said, "That's the one answer I'm not going to use." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he 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 told a lot of stories about how he got things done because he was so proud of it, uh, and and that kind of I thought shifted the way the presidency actually operated because most presidents before that had done the same things but never told anybody. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and and he he, he seemed. That sort of gave away his naivety uh, about about being a politician, maybe. But I thought I thought it was very funny. Yeah, um, right. He gave it away, but still at the same time figured out ways to make it work better for him. Yeah. Um, so there's those investigations. There's a couple other really big ones that you've done. Well, Medicare fraud uh, is another one. Um, oh yeah. And and and. Uh, just it reminded me because I just read something the other day. Unemployment, uh, with all this money being being uh, spread around by the government right now, the unemployment fraud. They said it was like eleven billion dollars in California alone in, in unemployment fraud under the new money that's going out. So you tell about a little bit about the Medicare fraud situation. Well, it's remarkable how um, how easy it was. What they used to do in uh, and we focus on Southern Florida is they'd set up a a, a clinic, and they that would order. Um, all this material through Medicare, um, and they would then just and, and Medicare would just ship it. There was no checks and balances on a lot of these things, and so um, the the amount of money that they could make uh, was extraordinary. What they did was they got a hold of people's Medicare care numbers, for example. And one of the people we interviewed in that story was a former federal judge, and uh, they ordered two prosthetic arms for him, not one but two. And he said, you could see my arms are fine. <laughs> Medicare paid for it. And, and uh, you know, the, the cutout made a lot of money on it. Um, I love doing stories where you just sort of say at the end of it, no, that can't be real. No, 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 that's yeah. not real. Another one was like that was tax refund fraud, which was sort of along the same lines. Right. They get, you know, these, these scam artists get a hold of your refund checks and then have it sent to a drop uh, mailbox and um, they, you know, guys said, guys said, you know, I'd fill out 10, 20 forms and I can make $10,000, $20,000 in the course of a day or two uh, and, and without working very hard. Uh, and, and the IRS just paid it. I mean, there's extraordinary amount of, of money that just goes out the door without checks and balances. So, you know, everybody's trying to scrimp on stuff, but they need much more of an enforcement effort. I think that's what I where I came out out on it, which is you know Medicare at that time before we did the story didn't really have a strong enforcement effort to go after these uh, people, mm -hmm. and after we did the story, I think they they gave like an extra hundred million to try to stop the fraud from going out the door. Do you have having done all those kind of uh, investigations into the government? What is your take on something like the single payer system for national health care and letting the government take over different things? Um, do you have have you developed a philosophy, a political philosophy about that kind of thing? Watching yeah, my, my, yeah, my again, this is my opinion. It's right. it's it's not I'm not speaking for anyone else, 
Um, my opinion is, is the more that government involves themselves in our personal lives, the worse it is. Um, they don't make things uh, better through the systems that they set up. They make things worse. Um, and I'd love to debate somebody on that in terms mm. of, uh, of uh, what they've actually done uh, that, that has been great. Now, having said that, the Great Society programs under Johnson obviously have been enormously successful, have, have right. saved lives, have, have done incredible stuff. I think the way um, – I think journalists in the future are going to be examining the way the pandemic and the vaccine rollout happened. Um, and friends of mine who are in the medical community are telling me, uh, you know, horror story after horror story about this. Um, it's a story that's still playing itself out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I don't think they do it well. I, I think private uh, industry and private companies uh, have more incentives to do it right and, and more t- in a more cost-efficient way. Mm-hmm. And even when you're getting some... a salary, you know, when, here's the thing. When you're just getting a salary. You're going to get paid whether something works or not. Right. And it's not like you're incentivized because you saved the government $100 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're still getting the same paycheck. Um, but that's not the way it works in private industry. Private industry, people are incentivized. Uh, to improve mechanisms and to make things efficient. Not, not obviously. I'm spe- I'm speaking broadly, mm-hmm. but you know, generally, uh, you are credited. People get bonuses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't really happen in government. So I think that's one of the big faults and problems in that regard. I mean, there was a point in time when uh, I know under the Trump administration they were talking about privatizing the army, for example, right, uh, and sending private armies to. Um, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan, um, you know, that has its own set of issues and problems. Right. Uh, so you don't really want to do that. Yeah, I was going to say that it, to divide the, the uh, what the government does and what it doesn't between what can be monetized and what can't be monetized. Very hard to put a monetary value on education, for example, uh, where it's absolutely crucial. And so but, but we won't go into that discussion. There's too many fun stories uh, to do. So let's back up again to you're a young man. And, and you come out of Cornell with this one story and so on and so forth. And you're a good tennis player, which really helps. So why don't you tell the story about playing tennis with Peter Moss when you first got started and who you played with doubles out in the Hamptons? Because I, I think thank, that's great. Thank you for asking me because um, I got an uh, email from the person I'm about to mention's um, wife. So I'm playing, um, I'm playing tennis. Um, and Peter Moss was a uh, writer who wrote the Veloci Papers and Serpico. And, uh, you know, talking about, you know, I, I just admired him so much. and I learned so much from him. And so he let me hang out with him in the Hamptons. And um, my the price was I had to play tennis with him on weekends and doubles. Mm-hmm. And, and one day I get to the court and it's Kurt Vonnegut and Morley Safer. And... Um, it was kind of, you know, the way I describe it in the book, it's the old man tennis, the way old man tennis is supposed to be played mm-hmm. with lots of banter and fun. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's wife actually um, sent me an email. She loved the story so much. Yeah, Passed it around and she called Morley's wife, uh, Jane Safer, and read it to her. But um, it, it was, um, it, they smoked cigarettes constantly. And so, 
you know, between games, they smoke a cigarette and then play a little bit and smoke another cigarette. And then they just got tired of putting the cigarette out. So then they go on the court and both of them are smoking cigarettes. And, and I didn't want to hit the ball at them. I was afraid they're going to choke. So you know, I'm, I'm playing, as in Peter Moss's words, soft. And uh-huh. so, um, but it was, it was so delightful and talking and relaxed. And, you know, it's... it's um, the tennis was just sort of a, a you know d- a different place than a bar. It was just a it was a place to banter and talk, and it was so it was really one of the most memorable matches I've ever played. It's because I just I love Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, I, he's he went to Cornell as you you know as you know right right you know and uh, so <laughs> yeah I mean uh, anyway I, I just that was such a beautiful image, and you have so many of them, and we're. we're if you read the book, you'll, you'll, there's hundreds of these kind of things, but I don't want to miss the one with Marlon Brando. Um, I mean, you're oh. trying to get Marlon Brando on, and I love how you missed a date, uh, which which I think almost everybody would have skipped that date. But to tell that story, I think that's just wonderful. Yeah, I know. It's appropriate that I'm doing this from uh, a bookstore because mm-hmm. um, um, I, I had just finished a story on Joe Bonanno, and uh, I wanted to use a little bit of The Godfather. Normally, it's a very simple request through the studio. One day... Brando himself calls. How is Joe Bonanno okay with using this and all this? Yeah, yeah, he's fine. But he and I then began um, a long, long conversations uh, over weeks and months. I'd call him up and wish him happy birthday. Both of us were born on the same date. And he uh, said, what is it with birthdays? Animals don't celebrate birthdays. Trees don't celebrate birthdays. What's it, you know, why are you, so- Marlon, I'm just calling you up to wish you happy birthday. <laughs> celebrate it. And then another time he'd call me up and, you know, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but he, he, they just start, they don't say, hello, how are you? No, they just talk. And so one day Brando calls up and he says, you ever know that people who have these great reputations, but are real assholes. And I said, Hey, Marlon, good. Nice talking to you. I got to go. I'm meeting some, somebody at the bar. He ignores it. Charlie Chaplin, great reputation and asshole. William Saroyan, great reputation, asshole. And, um, and so then he starts reading me Saroyan. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, my God, Marlon Brando is reading me. No one else, William Saroyan. And uh, it, it's really magical. And this is a time before cell phones you, mm-hmm. or texts. You can't text. I'm running a little late. Yeah. can't do that. And so I had the choice, listen to Brando or, or meet the person at the bar. And of course, I picked Brando. And, uh, and then, you know, 20 minutes after he began the conversation, he, he hangs up and just stops. He just yeah. like gets bored or whatever. He hangs up. But I wanted him as an, as an on-camera interview. So I was um, pursuing him. And finally, I got a time to meet him in, in um, L.A. with Mike Wallace. And uh, he picks us up in a white Rolls Royce. He's wearing a white suit. Mike gets in the front. I'm sitting in the back. Mike says, I'm a little nervous. Brando says he's a little nervous. And I'm saying, yes, this is going so well. <laughs> we, we drive down Mulholland Drive, and Marlon's running every single red light. And I said, Marlon, what are you doing? You're going to get us killed. He said, you're going to let a machine tell you what to do? Be a man. <laughs> we finally get to uh, this restaurant, and we sit down. And um, Marlon starts by saying, you know, Mike, I've admired your acting abilities for a long time. And he said, what are you talking about? Oh, the raised eyebrow, the look of astonishment. You're a genius actor. I'm a journalist. I'm not an actor. Oh, stop it. You're an incredible actor. So, <laughs> oh, my God, what's going on here? And then Mike 
decides to hit back. So he says, how did you get so fat? And Brando says, well, I go to Baskin Robbins. I can't decide what flavor I want. So I order a quart of everything they got and I take it home. I end up eating it all. At which point Mike says, you know, I'm 66 years old. I don't need to make my reputation by showing America what an asshole you are. Let's just be friends. And I'm like going crazy because I really wanted the interview. Anyway, Brando at that point, the calls became very, very infrequent. But I got one final call from him. And he says to me, um, you play the market. I said, a little bit. I don't have much money. And so he said, well, you should. Uh, let me give you a stock tip. I said, what's that? There's a company called Apple. I said, I haven't heard of it. He said, you will. Trust me. Put all your money into it. I said, okay, fine. And I tell Mike about this. And Mike says, you could invest in the company. I said, are you crazy? Why would I take a stock tip from a guy who can't decide what flavor ice cream he wants? <laughs> Because he got the, the, the uh, tip direct from Steve Jobs, right? Yes. He apparently <laughs> at that time, uh, the, the company had gone public, I guess, a year or two before. But Jobs wanted Brando in, I think, commercials or something. So uh, they, uh, they uh, tell me that. And, and I wasn't really, you know, it's call, I'm stupid. Just call me stupid. I just wasn't sensitized to the whole computer revolt re revolution that was about to take place yeah. uh, at that time. Um, oh. You know, I was a year late on that one. Well, it's still very hard to look back and see who's going to make it anyway. But uh, but yeah, there's everybody that says Mark Twain didn't invest in the telephone and he invested in a typesetter and the typesetter failed and the telephone obviously went crazy. So right. um, so we have a lot of questions in and I'll, I'm going to ask a couple of them first and then go back to a couple of things that I want to cover before. Um, sure. Just, just for the audience, there's uh, uh, if you like some of those um, you know stories about Marlon Brando and everything. There's so many, you have so many stories about so many famous people, especially the media people who you all uh, know that did did the sixty minutes tours. Um, oh, and before we get to these questions, I do want to ask you one thing. You seem to be a little nostalgic for the the uh, old fashioned office kind of chaos uh, that was going on, and I was wondering if you think that the kind of inhibiting rules that have come into that whole uh, play have uh, cut down on creativity or hurt things or, or whether I, I know you think it's partially a good thing, but is it, is it partially a bad thing too for the offices that the creativity is inhibited? I think the most important thing in, inside an office framework is to feel safe and uh -huh. to feel respected and to feel safe, whether you're a man or a woman, you know, harassment sometimes goes both ways, as you know, um, so I think that's the most important thing. I think the crazy um, chaos that had existed um, back then um, was something that should have been corrected back then. Mm -hmm. uh, they should have addressed it back then. Um, the, the creativeness really had to do, when I wrote about some of this in my book, it really had to do with the fact that these people were larger than life characters, that they, um, what Mike Wallace's, what he tried to do was to try to get people angry. He tried to, you know, get, he tried to get a reaction out of people. Um, and, and of course he went too far in, in, in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this rivalry that existed, like, you know, Morley Safer and Mike Wallace's offices were this far apart. Mm -hmm. Yet Mike would steal a story from Morley and they wouldn't talk uh, for a year. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, it's not just men who are just fighting. I mean, I, I went to ABC 
and mm-hmm. I was working with Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters, they had they were two extraordinary talents. I mean, they're the two top best people in the business, but they had an enormous rivalry. Um, when we did Primetime Live at the very beginning, um, in our debut show, Diane had booked um, a, a major figure, a major character, and Barbara would, you know, literally hours before the broadcast was trying to steal the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so they had these rivalries and this this energy and stuff. Um, so I think that's what I was really referring to. It's it's the the competition that existed mm-hmm. that um, you know with with the the chaos and and the fighting that um, that existed, but the fighting in some ways, and again, I'm not excusing their reprehensible behavior, which a lot of it was, but some of that fighting was creative fighting. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they were sparking each other um, to make the best piece. Um, And and they didn't treat each other so nice during those, those periods in time. Yeah. It's interesting that um, part of being older is is, is true at every generation as it goes by, but uh, people uh, often say, Oh, uh, we wouldn't do that now, but the humor in the 2005, say like in the office or something like that, was very popular. We would never do something like that now, but back then, and you think back then, it was like nobody knew about this. So you have to go back to the 70s, and of course, it was it was a very big issue uh, with the feminist uh, revolt, and everybody knew that it was a bad uh, bad boy behavior was not acceptable in the office and so on and so forth. It's been known for for a long, long time. Right. So it's, I, I find it very humorous when people go back 10 or 15 years and say, well, we can excuse their behavior then because nobody knew anything about this then, you know? <laughs> no, no, they, they knew about it. They just turned, you know, they, they just turned their backs on some of these They didn't address, the, address it. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about the, the competition, some of it was there were, you know, what I talk about sometimes is there were no grown-ups in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, if Diane, if Barbara was stealing a story, I was involved in one situation, um, where Barbara was stealing something from Diane we went to Rune Arledge, who was president of ABC news at the time and ABC. Mm-hmm. And his response back then was, well, she outsmarted you. Well, you know, smarted us. He wasn't outsmarting. It was, it was thievery. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, but, but, you know, the rules, you know, the rules have changed, um, People really understand, and I think it's made for a much better work environment um, for for men and for women, for women and for men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a it's a two way street. Um, you need to feel safe in the in the work environment. I think that's a very important thing. Absolutely. So now let's go to a question. And by the way, you're in sort of a perfect position. All you have to do is read his book, and you'll know he's in a perfect position to to, to make that comment. Um, so we have several questions come in. One came from uh, Mark Shaw, uh, an author, and he said, you mentioned in your book um, quotes from the gangster Joe Bonanno regarding the JFK assassination. Um, you want to tell that story? You, you, you mentioned it in two places. In one place, you say it may be just mafia talk. So why don't you? Sure. There's, yeah. there, there were actually two things Joe said. We, so we finished the interview with... Um, with Mike Wallace, he's on his way to the airport, and Joe and I are having a cognac in the back porch. And I said to Joe, uh, I first started by saying, uh, Joe, uh, who killed Kennedy? Uh-huh. He said, well, when the Kennedy assassination happened, um, he called down to Santos Traficante, who was the um, head of the mafia in Miami, mm-hmm. and said, what's going on? And he said, listen, 
Traficanti said, this is what Joe says, said to him, uh, Miami and New Orleans, run by Carlos Marcello, will take the heat for it. New York is absolved. New York had five crime families. At the right. Time. And so Joe then sent his consigliere down there and found out that they tried to kill Kennedy uh, in Miami with Cuban exiles, but failed. And then they uh, basically took care of the deed in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and then uh, the next thing Joe told me was, uh, I said, you know, Joe, growing up in New York, I, I was fascinated by Meyer Lansky, the mm-hmm. Jewish gangster. And I said, was he that good with you know, like investing your money? He said, investing my money? He had the picture. I said, what picture? He had a picture, this is what Joe says, of J. Uh, Edgar Hoover, FBI director, and his, his number two, Clyde Tulson, having sex with each other. Mm-hmm. We that picture to blackmail them to basically say there was no such thing as a mafia. And for a long time, as you know, you know, Hoover said there was no such thing. I think it was even after Appalachia in 57 that he kept denying there was anything like an organized crime. So Bonanno said that's because he had the picture. And so the problem, as you pointed out with this sort of thing, is you can't just run to the press and say, Kennedy assassination solved, here it goes. Right. Uh, because a lot of these guys like to talk. They like to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, another gangster who I know said that it was uh, Johnny Roselli who was shooting from a sewer and shot Kennedy. Uh-huh. Um, now, when I, when I mentioned this to Gotti Jr., he said to me, Johnny had bad eyesight. He could never make the shot. What do you thought? <laughs> so, so this is the kind of banter you kind of get mm-hmm. um, in when you're dealing with some of these guys. It's delicious stuff. It's it's great, but it's not something that I would call and hold a congressional committee hearing on. So so uh, and and we don't take it as the only reason why uh, J. Edgar Hooper and uh, Robert Kennedy didn't get along when he was Attorney General because exactly. Sounds like that could be the basis. He didn't want the information out. He didn't want the mafia attacked. But it's probably not the only basis, I'm sure. Yeah. No, again, I cover a lot of this in my book, Ticking Clock. So I, I, yeah. you know, I, I just urge everybody to take a look at it. And I'm, I'm giving a very short versions of some of these stories. Absolutely. So here's another question. Here's from Susan Pfeiffer. Having watched 60 Minutes from the beginning, I remember the expose on the auto dealer who rolled back odometers and the tobacco story. What's your favorite expose on 60 Minutes and your favorite profile? Um, so my favorite profile, oh boy. Um, <laughs> you're going to be surprised by what I'm about to say. Um, my favorite story that I, that I did where I had the most fun was truffle hunting in Perugia, Italy, mm-hmm. um, where I was able to go out and, uh, with the dogs and and um, and hunt for truffles, and of course, me being who I am, I made it into kind of an investigative story where I found out that the Chinese were flooding the the uh, truffle market with phony truffles, mm-hmm. uh, and there are you know a handful of truffles could cost the black truffle could cost you know thousand dollars, white truffles are much more expensive. The mm-hmm. Chinese figured out they had a cheaper version, a knockoff version of the truffle that they were selling for $20 a pound. So they then started flooding the market and, uh, uh, you know, cheating the customer, if you will, out of it. It was just a delightful, fun story, you know, in the hills of Italy with dogs hunting for truffles. And then 
having an Italian chef sing O Solo Mio uh, <laughs> to me while he's, you know, grating truffles on it. Leslie Stoll and I did that story, and, and both of us, you know, regard it as one of our all-time favorites. Yeah, and you, you wrote up that story really nicely in the book. Yeah, and I have uh, pictures uh, from that shoot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, you, you, just an aside, you say the most expensive show ever done was never put on. It was about the Tibetan monks. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was just such a funny, funny side story. <laughs> yeah, I, Ed Bradley, um, I'm not sure what language I could use, but um, on this, on this yeah. Zoom, well, I'll clean it up a little bit. <laughs> not to offend anybody, but um, Ed Bradley um, did a story with his uh, producer, Bill McClure, um, and they went to Tibet. And um, uh, the producer is, uh, was a former cameraman, and he kept sh shooting sunrise and sunsets. Mm -hmm. It became one of the most expensive stories that uh, 60 Minutes ever did. And um, so the, he, he was um, shooting the story, and they bring it back. They edit it together, and they show it to Don Ewitt, creator of 60 Minutes. And Don says... The monks walk, walk to the left, the monks walk to the right, then the monks walk to the left again. What kind of effing story is that? <laughs> and, uh, needless to say, it never made air um, because, you know, but it was extraordinarily expensive. Um, but it was kind of, it gave you a sense of what the laissez-faire kind of attitude was um, at 60 at the time. We would do stories about the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. um, we would do this extraordinary story um, where he traveled on the last train ride. Um, and... Harry Reasoner did the most expensive meal you could buy on planet Earth. And that was the, you know, and, and in a time when we're going now through pandemics, um, you know, the divisiveness of the last election, you know, I kind of miss some of those stories where you just could sit back and take a breath and just be entertained at, at the at the genius of the writing. I mean, uh, Harry did a story about um, the end of Casablanca, for example, where mm -hmm. they down the set, the movie set of Casablanca, and uh, they were selling it off as spare parts. And he said that everybody remembers who they saw the movie with. Mm -hmm. And if she's looking in now, here's looking at you, kid. That yeah. was just brilliant writing and just, you know, and and um, just as a fan of the show, as much as a participant of the show, I really miss it. Okay. And uh, we have uh, one more question from Kalina Gregory. It's just a joke, actually. You know you're going to have a bad day when you wake up and see Dan Rather walking up your driveway. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually you know you're going to have a bad day when you see Mike Wallace walking up your driveway. <laughs> <laughs> Today, I don't think you'd have a bad day if you see Dan Rather walking because he's probably doing an interview with an aging rock star, but um, <laughs> just what he's doing. doing these shows, which are great. I love them on an Axis. But, um, yeah, that was sort of the way people regarded it. But... Um, that's true. But everybody watched. Um, everybody. The the you tell us a story about Dan Rather after he he um, had his debacle uh, with the the story about George W. Bush uh, and so on. So he's not working anymore, um, and he's in the office and he's got a uh, he, he's walking by and he asked one of the secretaries, "What's what's the soup of the day?" Yeah, and, and, then, and yeah, and he, and he had enough self awareness to to realize you know here i was the the great anchor of cbs evening news now i'm asking what the soup of the day was yeah. and it's kind of the you know and and one of the things in my book that i point out is the the end of days for mike wallace right uh, which a lot of people have 
have talked to me about. Uh, and it's amazing that with this extraordinary career that Mike had at the end of days, he didn't have a memory of having worked on the show. Yeah. 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 The, you tell such um, personal and moving details about him, both the, the, the uh, stuff that's irritating and the stuff that obviously made it worthwhile for you to work with him for so many years. Uh, the difficult stuff. I mean, his relationship with his son, Chris Wells, is unbelievable. And we, we won't talk about that, but their details are in the book. Um, but uh, you, you also, as a big overarching theme that you had uh, in the book for a lot of the people is, do you know when to quit? Do you know when to retire? Um, and the same is something that people discuss, like about, uh, like, say, Tom Brady or, <laughs> you know, top sports stars of, of, who have to quit much earlier um, if they're going to go out at the right peak. But I, I think you should talk a little bit about that because I, I think that's an interesting thing for everybody to try to decide in whatever their, their situation is because the decision isn't just financial. The decision right. is, is, is something much more than that. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah, these, these people had more money than they'll ever spend in their lifetimes. And yeah. uh, what, they, what they inevitably did was they stayed on stage too long. And uh, Morley Safer, you know, in his last conversations... Uh, would tell his his people, spend more time with your family, leave the scene. Morley would end up um, retiring, I think, you know, within a week or a month of, of the time, would end up dying within a week or a month of the time that he uh, retired. Right. Uh, Andy Rooney was sort of the same way. Um, you know, Ed Bradley, you know, died of cancer, where in the last stories he, that he did, he could barely voice over the stories that he was doing. And and you realize that people stay on the stage a little bit too long. Um, and, you know, when I was, you know, I know we're running out of time, but the last no. thing I just want to say, when I was started, um, I was um, covering the New Age movement. And one of the people I had great admiration for was somebody named Pir Vilayat Khan, who was the head of the Sufis at mm -hmm. the time. And um, he said to me, he gave me darshan, and he said, change your career every seven years that way you become the ruler of your career and the career doesn't become the ruler of you and needless to say i disregarded that that spiritual directive right but, um, you know but i think you still have a chance if you could kind of you know if you want to have your full career and you want to leave just leave in my case i left if you will when I was, I felt I was at the top of my game. I had just won a Peabody, a DuPont, an Emmy, mm -hmm. and a million other things for the uh, opiate series. And it was a perfect time to move on and to do different things and try different things out. And um, it's it's something that I didn't see a lot of the people I work with do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very clear that you you, you watched and you learned. Um, yeah. And uh, and I was actually going to go back to, to your, your New Age uh, journal because I thought that was a very interesting, that's the first thing you sort of did after Cornell. Um, and right. and and how what was it that you had done that made you go to work for uh, as a writer first for the New Age uh, journal for something? Uh, obviously, people from the late 60s and early 70s think, well, everybody did that. Um, you know, or not everybody, but lots of people did that. But it, it's still uh, well, an unusual I, choice. Yeah, I was very... Um... I was into Kundalini yoga. Uh, yeah. I'd been in, you know, in an ashram for a period of time. Uh, I was vegetarian. Uh, I, you know, I I got to know uh, Yogi Bhajan, uh, mm -hmm. and who was running the uh, movement at the time. Um, and um, you know, I was that was the direction that that I was pursuing at that point in time. 
and um, you know, and I it was it was part of the 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 journey of self discovery, mm-hmm. um, and so that got me into that, and you know, um, you know, I did that for a short period of time. They must have um, been very happy with the higher level of writing ability that they got from you, um, from from the average of those uh, journals. When they said the topics are very interesting, but you know they don't they don't really get the top writers that often. Right. Uh, although at the time um, there was really that, that was a really big uh, push uh, time in the early seventies for uh, alternative attitudes towards what's going on in life. Yeah. Um, Maybe we talk, uh, finish up with one last thing. You did a Larry Flint interview, um, and he gave you uh, the, the three things that everybody wants to to uh, hear about all the time: JFK, UFOs, and uh, drugs. And I thought that that was it was such a weird uh, conclusion. But I've run into other people who are in the magazine industry who have also just have a very the way that life works is very very simple. Uh, you just take people's normal desires, daily desires, and dress them up every month in a slightly different dress and, and, and keep hitting the same things over and over again. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the context of it was uh, I was, again, bouncing around, struggling, trying to, trying to develop some freelance work. And Flint, during a short period of time, was going legit. And he created a magazine called Ohio Magazine, where he was hiring, you know, legitimate newspaper people, legitimate people, and he wanted me to be the Washington bureau chief of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was out of work, and he's paying me more than I ever thought I'd make. I think it was twenty thousand dollars. And uh, he he said, "I got a story for you to investigate." I said, "What's that?" They're making human beings in Massachusetts without belly buttons and without souls. And I said, "Who?" And he said, the CIA. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I'll get right on it. it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a strange, I, I write about a lot of that in the book. Well, listen, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure, it. but I, I want to I finish with something more substantive. That is Verishek's Innocence Project. Yes. You, you did something on that. I had an associate that worked for me that that's what he did his pro bono work for. So I'm familiar with the project. But why don't you, because this really saves people's lives. Um, no, you and, know, and you, I mean, you did a 60 minutes thing on it. And I, I think that that's I've done, another. I've done actually, I've known Barry a, a very, very long time. And, you know, he's, he really has done such extraordinary, noble work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's both a friend and uh, I'm a huge fan of his. And over the decades I did, when I was at ABC, I did one of the first DNA stories with Barry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, we've done other stories. I mean, there's no nothing more noble you can do as a journalist than to get somebody who's wrongfully convicted out of jail. And yeah. um, and I think, you know, that's certainly the work we've done uh, over the years. We we did it, and um, Barry and I did it. Actually, I, on one story, I worked with his um, partner, Peter Neufeld, um, and on uh, Innocence in uh, Chicago, where, where these kids were wrongfully convicted in Chicago. And then I did something on 30 years on death row, mm-hmm. where where somebody was railroaded by a prosecutor who went on camera with us to talk about how he railroaded mm-hmm. to this day. I, I it's, it's an incredible, it's, it's Bill Whitaker's and mine favorite story that mm-hmm. we ever, and um, you know, I, I just, just tell the, you got to read it. It's really, yeah, you got to yeah, read it. I, I write, I write about a lot of it in there. Yeah. yeah. It's very moving, and unfortunately, it's an unending job. Uh, so next generation, take it over. Keep keep uh, working on this because uh, 
in spite of the fact that it's not very many people who do those kind of things, there's always some pressures, like you said at the beginning, about the fear of failure, the fear of, you know, uh, am I going to become unimportant, that kind of thing that makes people want to close a case and then not play by the rules. And then somebody totally innocent sits in jail for 30 years, and oftentimes it's a powerless person uh, to begin That's with. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And it really, really is a shame that we keep doing that. But, you know, we get keep getting better at it and uh, everybody should just keep it in mind who likes to work on that kind of thing and get, get it back out there because that's one of the things that we can all work on and make things a little bit better. Completely bringing, bringing out all that information has been very useful. Very fun book. Thanks so much, Ira, for joining us. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club and it's 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks again, Ira, for coming and joining us. And thank you for joining us, the audience. We'll see you again soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.